Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 312 of Charlotte's Podcast, Beyond 300. Uh, we hope you uh, enjoy this episode as much as we did putting it together. Um, I'm here with Sarah Archer today. Hannah LaRue is still on maternity leave. I uh, hope you're doing well, Hannah, um, but she'll be dropping in from time to time. And uh, we do have a guest host with us today uh, with uh, Mark West again. Mark, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been uh, fun to uh, to work with you, too, and um, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun, and uh, so today uh, for our author feature lineup, we've uh, we've got an interview with award-winning author Terry Roberts. Uh, Sarah does that interview. It's uh, the novels of Sky Club. It's a story of money, greed, and life after the stock market crash from the eyes of one remarkable woman as she creates her own imagined life. And also, interview with Mark West, our co-host today. He's a professor of English at UNC Charlotte, and I. He's uh, written a fun children's book called The Peeve and the Grudge. It's a series of humorous poems that revolve around wordplay and extended puns uh, also. We've also got a community blog post we're going to talk about by mystery writer Joe Congel um, about how writing can be a gift. Yeah, so uh, all right, so let's jump into uh, Act 1 here with the, uh, with the host news. Uh, Sarah, what's your news? We're, of course, we're to ground ourselves. It's uh, October the 28th now when this comes out. So... Um, as of the end of October, I'll be getting ready to go to New York in beginning of November. Um, I'm going to be there for a few days to visit some friends, visit some writers, um, also, you know, go around and see town some. We're going to see the Book of Mormon, which is exciting. That's something that I've been wanting to see for years. And so, yeah, that'll be a good chance to go back and see some people I know there. I lived in New York a little bit um, for I guess I moved away like a couple of years ago and I have a writer's group there who I still meet with via Zoom, which is nice, um, and a few other writers who I know in the area. So I'm going to be meeting up with a bunch of them and it's just going to be a good chance to see some friends. Yeah. Mark, uh, what's uh, in your world around October the 28th? Well, you know, I am, uh, maybe, you know, I don't know if you know or not that I have this really uh, strong interest. Some might call it an obsession with Theodore Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have uh, sometimes it seems like Theodore Roosevelt and, and I shared this office because sometimes I have so many Theodore Roosevelt books here. So I, I wrote a book uh, that just came out earlier this year uh, called Theodore Roosevelt and his library at Sagamore Hill. Well, that book has done pretty well. And my editor at the publisher 
publishing company, asked me for a second Roosevelt book. So that's what I'm working on right now. Um, it's an edited book, and edited books go a little more quickly than books that you actually write all the words yourself. But my co-author in this book is none other than Theodore Roosevelt. So um, uh, the book is tentatively titled uh, Theodore Roosevelt on Books and Reading. And um, Theodore Roosevelt Theodore Roosevelt wrote an amazing amount. Um, he, only, he died at the age of 60, but he, he wrote 40 books. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. And then he had these piddly little jobs like being president. <laughs> um, but, um, but in this uh, work, book I'm working on right now, I am looking at um, his writings about his favorite books, the reading process, the importance of reading. So um, my deadline is coming up at the uh, very soon. And so I know that's what I'll be be working on until the end of the year because uh i told my editor i'd get it done by the end of the year i have really no idea how i'm going to do that but that's what i'm working on <laughs> there, there you go there you go well in my world about that time um uh, as of today i'll probably be honing uh, a little presentation i'm gonna do for the charlotte writers club which will be on november 15th about all the marking i did not know and hopefully between the time we record this and the time i hone that uh, further i'll learn some more about marketing because uh, I've been diving into uh, ads for authors by Mark Dawson and uh, learning about uh, the online advertising process. And there's some interesting things about that that uh, I'm, I'm picking up on. So that'll be fun. I've also got a event. Uh, it seems I'm on the retirement community tour these, these days. So I'm doing the Pines uh, Retirement Community in Davis on November 4th. Uh, i got a local book club on November 8th. And, uh, you know, if you'd like to talk history, uh, Charlotte history and the historical uh uh, grounding of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, you know, shoot me an email through our website and uh, I'll be glad to come out and talk. So, uh, good. Lots of fun things going on uh, with us, the host. Um, and let's jump right to book recommendations. And Mark, since you're, the, uh, you're our, our guest host today, we'll let you go first. Well, my recommendation today is the brand new novel, mystery novel by my friend and uh, actually former student. He doesn't really like to talk about that all the time, but he really was. And that's Mark DeCastric. Uh, Mark DeCastric and I have known each other from, for a long time. Mark DeCastric is, in addition to being a mystery writer, is a, uh, a film and a video producer. Um, and in fact, he's actually won an Emmy um, from the work that he did when he was living in D.C. And I mentioned D.C. because um, his brand new mystery, which is called Secret Lies um, is set in Washington, D.C., and it deals with this amazing woman who runs an older retired FBI person who runs a boarding house outside of D.C. Um, where most of the people who live in it are FBI agents and Secret Service agents, um, people who are kind of coming in and out and have these uh, mysterious lives. And one day, uh, one of the people uh, who's renting a room gets murdered in right, right in front of the house, the boarding house. And, uh, so our retired secret service agent, uh, ends up, uh, becoming, a, a mystery writer. I mean, a mystery solver. Um, and, uh, so, uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great, uh, uh, brand new, it's part of a new mystery series that Mark is just launching with this book. But I highly recommend Secret Lives uh, and and all the other books that Mark has written over the years. He really has a, a knack for capturing places and coming up with interesting characters. I was emailing Mark just recently, 
And I said, you know, the character in Secret Lives reminds me a little bit of the character of Hetty in NCIS LA, uh-huh. um, this diminutive little woman who actually is feared by everyone and um, runs the show, even though at some at first glance you might not expect that that that, that she would be the person who uh, who exerts such power. Part of her power is uh, fooling people into thinking that she's a befuddled old lady um, uh, because that lets people let down their guard and they don't think they have to worry. And then before you know it, she figures out uh, uh, how to uh, move forward in her investigation. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's good. Mark, uh, I read that book and uh, it's just coming out, I believe, in October. And he, uh, he does a really good job. with. He's, he's written a lot of books. He's also been on the podcast before, listeners. You can, you can listen Go to our guest list and uh, find him there, or just scroll back through the episodes. He's all, he's also did a feature about how to write a mystery novel, which is very good. He he, he teaches you everything he learned from uh, Mark West, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, his very first book was a master's thesis, which was a mystery novel intended, historical mystery novel intended for um, for uh, for um, teenagers, um, and that started off as an MA thesis, creative thesis which I was the director of. So that was his very first work in the area of mystery. So, um, so uh, we go all the way back. <laughs> so. That's good. Uh, all right, Sarah, what you got? Um, so I would recommend a book called The Underwriting by Michelle Miller. Um, this is an ensemble story. It's about a group of young men, men, men and women working on an IPO for a dating app. Um, and so it's set kind of between Wall Street and the Silicon Valley tech world. And those are both worlds that I would not necessarily gravitate towards normally. Um, I, you know, I don't really know anything about IPOs or that kind of thing. But this is so well written that it was really fun for me to read, really gripping. It's very smart. It's very suspenseful. Um, I won't give any spoilers, but the ending is, is pretty interesting. And I think there was some controversy among readers about the ending. Um, so, yeah, it's just a really smart, well-written, interesting book and a lot of fun to read, very entertaining. So I, I recommend the underwriting for sure. Yeah, my recommendation comes from an audiobook I'm listening to on uh, Libro.fm, uh, Agatha Christie, 12 New Mysteries. Uh, it's, uh, it's experienced writers uh, writing uh, the Jane Marple mysteries. Uh, uh, so we got 12 baffling cases in this new collection, uh, acclaimed authors who, who are skilled in writing mystery and murder, but they're writing... Uh, new stories uh, of Jane Marple, a lot of fun. So, and they're short, so you can listen to them while you walk, unless you don't listen to anything while you walk, like Mark West, which you talked about in the last uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> then you can listen to them whenever you want to listen to them. Uh, all right, well, let's hear what Alyssa Pressler has to say from That's Novel Books. Hi, everyone. This is Alyssa with That's Novel Books. We're a used bookstore in Camp North End in a retail collective called Loquet. And I wanted to call and give a book recommendation for a book I just recently read in September at our silent book club. It's called The Charm Offensive by Allison Cochran. It is a very cute rom-com style book. And if you're a fan of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, this one is perfect for you. It's all about this socially awkward kind of tech guru who goes on to the dating show to revive his reputation. But as he's there, he ends up falling for his producer, uh, which causes just a few 
problems in the course of filming. Number one, being uh, in love with your producer is never good. But number two, he is a guy. Uh, and uh, the tech giant goes on to the show to find a woman to propose to. So kind of throws a wrench in things. But it's a really cute story. I loved all of the diverse representation in the main characters. Um, and overall, I would recommend it. It's a great palate cleanser book. So if you've just read something really heavy and you're looking for something a little lighter that you could kind of lose yourself in, this is that type of book for you. Thanks so much for listening and be sure you check us out. All right. And as part of our book recommendation section, uh, we've got a couple of author pitches. So uh, these are authors who took us up on uh, our invitation to uh, pitch their book in 30 seconds or less. Uh, you can do that, too. Just go to our website. Go to the contact uh, bar there, look for elevator pitches, and pitch your book. So uh, let's hear from Mary Flynn first. She's uh, talking about her book, Playing by Heart. It's the sequel to Lumina. Um, And uh, let's hear what she has to say. This is Mary Flynn, and my new book is called Playing by Heart. Playing by Heart, the sequel to Lumina, is set in the fall of 1928 at Oberlin College, where Sylvie is studying piano performance in the Music Conservatory. In this parallel story, our modern-day characters, Anne Borden Montgomery and her friends, are reading aloud again. More diaries A.B. and Bernie have found while attic diving during the early stay-at-home days of the COVID pandemic. Southern Sylvie is a fish out of water in the Midwest. She finds friendship while encountering prejudice in its many forms. Which of her friends will succeed, and how will the COVID situation change the lives of A.B. and her friends? All right. Thank you, Mary, for that. Uh, now we've got uh, an elevator pitch from Linda Bouchard for Halloween's children book, The Witches 3, Count on Me. So a good time of year for something like that. Linda Bouchard here, author of the children's Halloween book, The Witches Three, Count on Me, a whirlwind adventure in rhyme about a mischievous kid who runs away from home on Halloween night. With whimsical words, a cool riddle, and a chase scene, this is a story you'll return to again and again, even when it's not Halloween, available wherever great books are sold for all the little goblins in your life. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, listeners, we're back with Act 2. We've got an author feature here. This is uh, Terry Roberts, the book of the Sky Club. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, Terry uh, here. Sarah, because you did the interview. Yeah, yeah. So um, Terry is the author of four celebrated novels. Um, he's a native of the mountains of Western North Carolina, which is kind of where the Sky Club takes place. Um, his ancestors were from that area too. And I think he drew on inspiration from some family members, not necessarily directly in a literal way, but kind of more generally drawing from family stories to help write this book. Um, he has six generations of mountain farmers in his family background, as well as bootleggers and preachers who appear in his novels. And he was raised by his grandmother, um, Belva Anderson Roberts, to whom the Sky Club is dedicated. He talked a little bit about her in the interview. And he's also the director of the National Padilla Center and lives in Asheville with his wife, Lynn, who um, I think was one of the first pers- people to endorse this novel and to endorse him writing a female protagonist, which he did quite yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, and y'all are going to talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, Janet, uh, recommended this book. Uh, she loved how uh, he was able to get into the head of a woman and stay there for uh, 
you know, an entire novel. She says, I can't get in the head of a woman ever. So, you know, <laughs> so it's pretty good, uh, you know, that uh, she, he's able to do that. And, and so he's gotten some praise. Fred Chappell said, the Sky Club is a wagon load of perilous fun. Terry Roberts is en- has engaged with the customary vigor, many of his favorite themes, local Appalachian history, mountain cultures, rural and urban, personal and communal courage, individuality. The resulting story is sprightly and steady. Every page here shines with t- truthful surprise. Bravo. And then, hey, he's got one from Lee Smith, too. Roberts has created the tough, true, funny, and unforgettable Joe Salter, an independent pistol of a woman who tells this lively tale set in a speakeasy on top of a mountain. I mean, what, what better place to uh, set a novel than a speakeasy on top of a mountain during during the Depression? So. Yeah, and there's a great um, image on the front cover, too, of the building, which is still there today. I think he said his son took the image with a drone camera, so... Nice little uh-huh. piece of family history there, too. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's play the interview. Terry, I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast talking about the Sky Club. I, I know that we've enjoyed reading your work in the past, and this is a wonderful new novel. So thanks for being here with us to discuss it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the Sky Club. And in particular, because this is a novel by a man told in the voice of a woman, um, it's kind of fun, too, to be able to talk with you about it and hear what you think about Joe Salter and her adventures. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I had a couple of questions about that, which I'd love to jump into. Um, and I know, you know, I, I enjoyed reading Joe's character. I know your wife is a fan of Joe <laughs> and of this book. Uh, Landis's wife, Janet, also mentioned loving the book and being impressed at how you were able to get inside a female protagonist's head. So what was that process like for you in the writing? Like, how did you kind of get inside the head of this character who, you know, obviously demographically is, is different from you? Well, it's interesting that there are big pieces of Joe's life that I do know intimately. By that, I mean uh, my family comes from the part of the world where she originates from, a place called Big Pine, which is Mm -hmm. on the map, by the way. Uh, If you're ever up this way, we can take a tour. And and she comes to town, to Asheville, a place I'm familiar with. Now, granted, 100 years later, but Mm -hmm. even so, there's a way in which Joe is almost a family member. She's not historical in any sense. There's no single person in my family that followed Joe's path, but I knew her voice in, after having grown up hearing my grandmother's voice, uh, who was born in 1888, uh, hearing my sister's voice, my mother's voice, so forth and so on. So her voice felt familiar in the beginning. Um, what intimidated me from the beginning are things that men not only don't know, but don't always think about hair for one thing. There's a chapter fairly early in the novel where Joe, a country woman gets her hair bobbed. And um, so she can join the 20th century. And there's a, there's a lot in there about hair that, that I, I just don't relate to. Well, you can see in the picture, I don't have a lot, but anyway, the, um, (laughs) Things like that in almost um, the harder challenge almost than living inside her psyche was living inside her body. Um, Thinking about, you know, she shaves her legs, she puts on makeup, she um, thinks about things in a way, I hope, 
and feels about things the way a woman would think and feel about things. I was talking to a, a friend who's also a novelist, Elizabeth Kostova, who's a very gifted novelist. And was, we were talking about this. And, and she said, all novelists have bisexual imaginations. And, and I said, I'm going to quote you on that. And she said, go right ahead. So I, I don't know if that's true, but, but when I started the process, that those things concerned me a lot. And then also further on in the book, um, Joe is um, quite, she, she almost said a ladies man. She's not, she's a man's woman. I guess she's, yeah. she's very active. Um, she's very interested in men. And, and so writing essentially sex scenes from the point of view of a woman, I knew that was coming from early on in the novel as I was writing along. And the, the interesting thing was by the time I got there, it just seemed second nature. It didn't even, you know, we were, we were there at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You were so far inside her head. It it, it seems like. Yeah. So it was, it it was great fun. It really was. And I think in a lot of ways it's a feminist book. So there was my, my opportunity to poke at my brothers a little bit. (laughs) So. Yeah, she's, I can totally see how you got inside her mind, um, both her kind of mental processes and physically being inside her body. Um, and it's interesting, too, that you mentioned her voice and how that was inspired in some ways by family members of yours. I, I felt like her voice was very distinctive and striking, and the story is told in her voice. Um, she's the narrator, so she's, you know, she's a real storyteller. She's very conversational, blunt. Um, she talks directly to the reader sometimes. You get her kind of country background coming through in her voice. Um, can you talk a little bit more about like how you found her voice and where that came from? And was it something that you consciously figured out or did it just sort of flow out of you as you were writing her story? It, it grew. <clears throat> There's a, I wrote the first chapter first, which is unusual for mm-hmm. me. A lot of times I'll start somewhere near the beginning and I'll begin to work through a novel, a manuscript, a story, an extended story. And at some point it'll hit me what the beginning is, the first paragraph, the first word, the first chapter. And, but in this case, I began with her mother's death and went from there. And by the time she got to Asheville in chapter two and meets her cousin, Sissy, and she and Sissy are talking about clothes and they're talking about boys, meaning men, um, talking about um, not, they're not talking about sex yet, but they are talking about their bodies. And fairly soon after that, three, four chapters in, and these are relatively short chapters, I began to hear her voice, quite honestly. And so there's a way in which I wrote my way into it, I suppose you would say. But once I was there, her voice, for me, became compelling. And Mm -hmm. um, I was able, in some ways, to take chances that I might not have taken. In other words, I have her talk to her cousin Sissy, to her friends, eventually to the man, Levi Airwood, that she gets involved with um, in a very open and honest way. And, and I think that there's a way in which it was freeing, if that makes sense, to, to be inside Joe Salter and have her be inside mm-hmm. my head. Um, 
I can have her say things I probably wouldn't say, or at least not to someone I didn't know very well. And, and so being able to capture that and being able to record that, um, for me was, was very exciting, quite honestly, and, and rewarding. So I didn't, I suppose if I'd written a hundred pages and I didn't hear her voice, I would have been stuck, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it came. You know, it's, it's almost yeah. one of those, if you build it, they will come. Well, if you, mm-hmm. Sometimes you build it and they don't come. But but in this case, yeah, she, she showed up. And, um, yeah, yeah, I can, I can definitely see how she kind of came to life as you're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes through on the page, too. And talking a bit about the kind of history of this, this novel. So it's, you know, set in the kind of onset of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. For me, as someone who is not a history expert by any means, when I think of the beginning of the Great Depression, I tend to think about Wall Street, yeah. you know, and the crash in New York in 1929, um, which in this book kind of comes and goes without that much attention to that particular event. Mm-hmm. The focus is much more on the bank crash in Asheville in 1930. Um, so how did you become interested in that event in history and decide to write a novel about it? I'd always, well, always, what's always, for 10 years, I thought about writing a novel that hinged around that one day, which is November the Mm -hmm. 20th, 1930, when, depending on the history you read, somewhere between eight and 11 banks did not open their doors and never opened their doors again. And the primary one was Central Bank and Trust in downtown Asheville, where all the city's money was deposited, the county's money was deposited, et cetera, et cetera. And so what attracted me to that was not because I'm obsessed with finance, honestly, but I was interested in it because it, it took something as large and unwieldy and as historically dramatic as the Great Depression, and it telescoped it down to one day. There was a day when suddenly there was no more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and no more money in the city, no more money in the county, no more money in the region. And for many, many, many individuals there, I mean, we say the phrase life savings kind of cavalierly as if it doesn't really matter that much, but th- their financial wherewithal, their financial resources evaporated overnight, unexpectedly. And so to me, that seemed like it, that's so dramatic it's an event in time, chronologically, that it felt like the perfect staging for a novel. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to tell it from the inside out. I wanted to tell it from somebody who was in the bank and saw it coming with this sense of suspense and foreboding. And I thought this person would be a mathematical wizard, a, a savant, and and one morning I got up and I thought, well, you know, even today, even in the 21st century, we tend to think of mathematics as the domain of men. Boys do math, girls read poetry, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I thought, what if she's a woman? What if she's against stereotype? Because I, I spend a lot of time in my books trying to write against stereotype, having characters do the unexpected based on what one would assume. And so I said uh, to my wife, Lynn, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell this whole darn thing from the point of view of a woman. And she said, uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> long drawn out, kind of skeptical. Maybe yeah. you should rethink that. Um, 
and so there I was. I, there I had it. I had I had a reason for her to go to town. There was a reason why she would be in the in in the bank, and and because she is a a wizard with numbers. Um, by the time the crash actually occurs, that that November day in 1930, she's the assistant to the head cashier. By that point, she can't be the head mm-hmm. cashier because she's a woman. Um, but she's the one they all turn to. She's the one who knows the numbers. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the the best motivation you can have to write something right is to prove to your spouse that you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a challenge embedded in that. Trust me. You know, yeah. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you, you pulled it off and she <laughs> seems to agree. Mm-hmm. So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and with the world of the story, I feel like it as I was reading, it felt so kind of richly brought to life in the details, not just in terms of um, the day-to-day stuff, like what characters are eating or drinking or wearing, but also the the technical aspects of like, how does the banking system work at that time? How does life insurance work? Um, There's just so much detail that went into it that really made it feel real and, and, and easy to understand for somebody who's not in that time and place. Um, I remember in particular one passage that was talking about the farmer's market on Lexington Avenue and describing that setting. It's kind of like where the city meets the country and it was just such a wonderful vivid description um so can you talk a little bit about the the historical research that you did and how you kind of culled certain details from your research and decided what to put into the novel to bring it to life it's uh it's interesting there there are some forebears to this book one is look homeward angel by thomas wolf Mm -hmm. you know which is set in a period of time between about 1900 and 19 15, 16, somewhere along in there, but that, but, and also a book called Last One Home by John Ely. And, and really the only reason I bring those up is to say this period of time in the small mountain city has been attempted before, been painted before, so to speak. So that's oddly enough, that's one sort of source of, of movement and of, of landscape and of cityscape. But also, there has been a fair amount written in regional history and Asheville history about the bank crash, about these characters, many of whom are based on historical models. Um, a man named Gallatin Roberts, no relation, was the mayor of Asheville. He did commit suicide after the new year, 1931, and his papers, his day book, his, one of his suicide notes is actually in uh, Pack Library here in Asheville, and so there's there's some primary source research that gives you a flavor of of what it was like. Um, the other thing, Sarah, that I think is really interesting is that because the city didn't declare bankruptcy when it lost all its money, but rather paid off its debts, which took fifty years. So until the 1970s, the city was in debt, wow. and because of that, nobody could afford to tear down these beautiful old Art Deco buildings that are still there. Um, so in, in many, many, many ways, if you walk down, around downtown Asheville today and you look up at the facade of buildings, what you see is 1924, 1923, 1926. So Asheville was, when the crash came, they were in the middle of this furious real estate, I don't know, epidemic almost, Mm -hmm. uh, obsession. And so when it hit, 
they had these beautiful buildings that are still here. And so one sort of almost physical research is, is to walk around. Um, mm-hmm. The houses in Lakeview Park that are described in the book are still here. The, the buildings in downtown Asheville, including, you know, the building that is Central Bank and Trust is now the French Broad Chocolate Lounge on Pack Square in Asheville. So, um, and the Sky Club. Don't forget the Sky Club. <laughs> the mm-hmm, Sky Club, <laughs> that building is is still here, sitting up on Bowcatcher Mountain. The photograph on the front of the novel was taken with a drone um, by my son, Jesse Roberts, six uh-huh. months ago. You know, And so it's condos now, but the landscape and the streets and the, and the, the facades of the buildings are, are sitting there waiting almost, you know, if the, if these mm-hmm. buildings could talk, that kind of thing, imagine the stories they tell. Well, this is one of those stories. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I, I love the architecture in Asheville and I didn't even realize that it was sort of like a happy side effect of the crash that they ended up not tearing down all those buildings, which now are, you know, a piece of history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that really came to life in the book too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, before we uh, get into the rest of the questions, I wanted to pause and give you a chance to read us a little passage from the book, if you'd like. I would love to. Um, Bit of background. Joe, we've said, of course, Joe comes in from the country, from Madison County. She goes to work at the bank. That's a primary part of her reality for the whole probably first two thirds of the novel. She also, though, discovers a place called the Sky Club, which is based on a historical uh, place that became a speakeasy and a supper club and a dance club in the late 1930s. At the time of the novel, it was still a private residence. So I had to to move the party up in -hmm. in time, as it were. This scene, uh, she becomes interested in a man named Arrowood. That's all she knows about him. He's the mysterious Arrowood. Uh, Dark, dangerous. Supposedly he's killed several men, that kind of thing. And... But she loves to dance. She loves jazz, she discovers. And so this scene is set in the Sky Club at a point where she doesn't yet know Levi Airwood. She's met him. They've talked for a few minutes. Um, She's fascinated by him. She fantasizes about him. But she doesn't really know him yet. And and so this is a night uh, she's there with her cousin Sissy and Sissy's boyfriend, Benjamin Ben. And this is what ensues. I could see Levi Airwood standing behind the piano with an unlit cigar clenched in that sharp jaw of his. Light the damn match, Levi, I thought. Join the fun. But as dark as it was beyond the piano, I could see he was watching something. I tracked his eyes past the band to a table. Four guys and two gals seated smack beside the dance floor. The men were wearing expensive clothes but looked hard. The women looked soft in the head and hard in the body. Their stockings were rolled provocatively down below the knee, which sent a message. There was a little food on the table and a lot of liquor. The women were smoking and sipping something sweet. The men were just drinking. At that moment, the trumpet joined and the piano followed him into the fray. I slipped off my bar stool and set my glass on the bar. I knew Mac would keep it for me. My hips were already moving. I turned and pulled Sissy's bin off his stool. Come on, little brother, I can't sit still. 
Sissy nodded, and I dragged Benjamin Scott out onto the floor. He knows exactly what they were playing, other than their hearts. But I was doing that strong black bottom, and Ben kept up as best he could. Black and silver. It's all you know and all you need to know about that number. My dress was reflecting the nighttime light of the sun, and Ben was grinning and mostly watching. People were laughing, and the room was spinning. The river of my dress runs into the sea, flowing in the silver moonlight. My God says they play jazz in heaven. And on earth, right up until Ben and I bumped into another couple and the woman fell down. We grinned and gasped a little bit and said we were sorry. Ben tried to help her up, but she'd broken a strap on her shoe and couldn't quite make it. The man pushed Ben harder than he needed to. It was only then that I realized they were from the table Levi had been watching tough guys and hard gals. Keep your hands off her, Junior, the guy said, before your pansy ass gets hurt. He was older than any of us, 50 maybe. Excuse me, sir, said Sissy's Ben. I was only trying to be of assistance. Laughter from the table where the rest of them were sitting. Say it again, pretty boy, from the other woman. The place got quiet. Even the band fell silent, which seldom ever happened. I offered my apologies, sir, Ben began again, but the old guy cut him off. You apologizing for being a fairy or for your girlfriend being a slut? In all my years of fighting with my brothers, I don't think I'd ever been called a slut. Not to my face. I stepped in closer beside Ben, who was stammering. Buster, I said low and quiet straight at the man's ill-shaved face. It was your pinhead girlfriend ran into us. I think you ought to apologize for her. You could tell he didn't like that. The people at his table were laughing at him. He turned to stare me down. Where are you from, sister? That was about all he could manage. Sounds like someplace to hell and gone out in the boondocks. I could feel Mac and Levi closing in. Mac on the other side of Ben and Levi on the other side of the table where no one had really noticed him yet. Where I'm from, men don't act like you, I said. I reached slowly over and pushed Ben back a step or two. I figured I'd gotten him into this and Sissy'd never forgive me if something happened to him. There was sweat in my eyes and trickling down the hollow of my back. It's time to ease it on down, Mr. Jameson. This was Levi. Somehow he'd slipped all the way around the table and was standing beside me. I could tell he was trying to get between me and the old guy. The boy apologized. Your girlfriend's okay. Everybody just needs to relax. Shut up, Airwood. I'm having a conversation with her, the country slut. You shouldn't say that, Mr. Jameson. I'd have to ask you and your friends to leave. I'm not ashamed of where I'm from, I said. You ought to be. The old guy was looking straight at me with sagging, bloodshot eyes. Levi let go of my arm and hit the old man so hard on the nose that his face exploded. He went down like a hog had been hit in the head with a sledgehammer. The other three men at the table were up now. One hefted his chair as if he meant to use it, and Max stepped in that direction showed him the Louisville slugger he kept behind the bar. Don't, Max said to him. It wouldn't be any fun. Everything was still except for the old guy groaning on the floor. The second stretched out. The dust motes floated quietly in the air. Finally, the guy with the chair slammed it back down to the floor, showing us how tough he was, even though he had no intention of mixing it up with Mac. Levi nodded. Thank you, he said to the chair guy. Smart move. I'll help you and your friends get Mr. Jameson out to your car. I have a feeling he'd appreciate it if you stopped by a doctor's office on the way home. His nose is broken. Go to hell, Airwood. 
I could tell out of the corner of my eye that Levi was smiling. Sure, he said. Why not? But first, let's get the district attorney out to the parking lot. He's bleeding all over the dance floor. That was great. It's so dramatic. <laughs> it kind of makes me want to go back in time and go to the Sky Club, except maybe just stay out of the middle of the, the brawls. That's right. Yeah. Observe. You Observe, can drink, yeah. you can dance, you can have a good exactly. time. But when the balloon goes up, just step back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Keep a little distance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you, you've written novels in obviously like this era around the late 1920s, early 1930s and other eras in history um, against the backdrop of different historical events, but a physical location that you keep returning to is North Carolina. Um, and, and of course, you know, there are many wonderful writers from North Carolina, novels set in North Carolina, Thomas Wolfe, like you mentioned, who also gets a shout out in the book. Um, what is it that inspires you about this place and that, that makes you want to write about North Carolina? Yeah, there's a, it's interesting. I sometimes think mountain writers, I would call us, mm -hmm. um, have places on the map which matter specifically to them. Robert Morgan in Zirconia. Um, John Ely was up in Yancey County, you know, when he was doing his work. Other, other, many other strong regional writers in a sense. Regional only in the sense that they, they live here and work here and so forth. I think there's a parcel of territory, a postage stamp of soil, to borrow Faulkner's phrase, that includes Madison County and includes um, parts of Buncombe, Asheville in this particular case, which to me resonate really strongly in the sense that this is, this is my landscape. This is where my ancestors are buried in, mm -hmm. in many, 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 many instances since 1800. Um, so there's that. I also feel as if it is a region that is in some ways, even now, unexplored and unexplained. I mean, there have been many great writers from Western North Carolina. Um, but even so, there's a, there's a quality, a, a lyricism, a, a, a tradition of storytelling, an oral tradition of of dramatic storytelling mm -hmm. um, that a, a number of writers have, have tapped into, but I don't think we're quite done yet. I think there's a lot still to say about this place um, and its richness, both as a source of story and a, and a source of uh, language. Uh, I'm always interested in language. One of the things in every single novel that I've been aware of, and there are five now, which shocks me that there are five of them. But in every case, I was interested in identifying at least one character who had a reason to be highly aware of and highly charged in terms of language. Um, Joe is, is the last, the most recent. I'm not going to call her the last, mm. but she's the most <laughs> recent of those characters. She loves words. And she, even though she understands numbers and believes in numbers, when she gets to town and starts hearing new words, she buys a dictionary and, and, and mm -hmm. begins to grow right before your very eyes. So I think that region, this region, has a, a wealth uh, in the landscape, in the people, in the language, and in and, and the music um, that 
for me is undeniable. And there's a danger in that. I'll, I'll be honest, because what happens is you you're running a risk as a writer of being of being pigeonholed first as a historical novelist and then as a regional novelist. You know, he writes books set in the past in Appalachia, mm. for God's sake, who would read that? You know, and so and one forgets that, you know, Thomas Hardy did that and that, uh, you know, there, there's a huge long list of writers who've done exactly the same thing. So part of the challenge is to write a book that that even though it is set in a specific place and time can take on a universal quality. Um, I don't you know, it's not for me to say if this book does that, but but certainly mm. that's my hope. Yeah, yeah, I think that certainly the a lot of kind of universal human emotions and themes come through here, even across the distance of time and depending on where you're reading from location too. Um, yeah, and Joe felt very fresh and contemporary and relatable, even though she's from a different time period, at least to me. Um, and talking a little bit more about kind of writing historical fiction, I, I took a little tour through your website mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have a great article on there about writing historical fiction. Um, and there was a line that jumped out at me from there that said, um, we are often astonishingly ignorant about the present, not having had enough time to think it through. Yeah. And I always think it's interesting with historical fiction to think about the power of hindsight mm -hmm. and kind of how we as readers and writers are viewing historical period through the lens of our own particular moment in history that we're living in. Um, so in writing this book, what were the kind of considerations that you made in how you presented the 1920s and 30s to a modern audience? How do you think that, you know, 21st century sensibilities mm -hmm. impacted how you were writing this <clears throat> historical time period? It's a great question. I, I should go back and look at my website. It probably, the answer is probably there. It's, and I it said, was very inspiring. Yeah, good. I, you know, the, um, I, I do think there is a sense um, in which we sometimes claim classic status for contemporary books. And I would argue we just don't know enough. You know, we haven't, we haven't felt them long enough generationally. We haven't read and reread them enough generationally to know what truly has that deep, profound, abiding human quality, um, mm -hmm. which, if I'm honest, my hope is to achieve that at some point. But, um, but I think going to the past, keep in mind, Homer wrote historical fiction. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he was writing about a period in Greek history that was hundreds of years before his own period. And so there's a now I'm not comparing myself to Homer. Don't let's not, let's just don't even go there. But but what I'm saying, I think, is that you can understand the past in some ways because it was simpler. And and by that, I mean, Joe um, does learn to use the telephone after having never spoken to one for the first in one for the first 26 years of her life. Mm -hmm. She learns to drive a car. She comes to town, as she said, I'd never even set my behind down in an automobile. And by the end of the book, she's driving. So, so she, she rockets forward in time. But even so, the, her story is untroubled by social media. Her story is untroubled mm -hmm. by cell phones, you know, and texting. And, and, the, and as such, it's a very modern, the 1920s are extraordinarily modern. 
the old ways were dying hard. The, the men had been either been killed during, the, during World War I, if you were from Europe, or if you're from America, men had gone away, gotten themselves killed, gotten wounded, gotten gassed. In the interim, women began to work. They had their own money. They bought their own cigarettes, bought their own contraception. They began to think of themselves as perhaps pursuing a man or another woman, as opposed to just being the object of pursuit. So Joe lived, in my mind, at any rate, my imagination, in an eerily modern world in some ways. And she was making decisions about her, her life professionally, because she's very much a working woman, about her body and about her sexuality that to me feel like very modern decisions that that you would have to make or another woman would have to make in a hundred years later. And so there's a way in which I got to have my cake and eat it too, because I was writing about what I believe was a very modern era. In other words, the 1920s played the same role in that century that the 2020s may play in our century. But I was able to go there write about life in that frame without many of the things that make our postmodern life frantic, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's valuable. That's a, that's a way of looking at your life and my life and our contemporary life obliquely, as it were, mm-hmm. and, and maybe be able to say some things about it that would be very hard to say if you set Joe's story in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I think that comes through for sure. Um, And that kind of leads into one last question I had about sort of historical perspectives on writing. Um, In this story, Joe's, her kind of hero's journey starts in the beginning with the death of her mother. And her mother tells her before she dies um, to go out into the world. And I think the phrase she uses is to make a life that I can't even imagine. That's what she wants Joe to do for herself. And so Mm -hmm. as Joe goes about doing that, you know, this is really a story of her learning from what her mother experienced in her mother's life and taking those lessons and using them to make her own way in the world Mm -hmm. and figure out who she wants to be. Um, So, and I think that's kind of interesting compared to historical fiction because a lot of times that's how we read it. You know, we're looking back at the past and what past generations and our ancestors went through in their lives and, and applying them to our own. So how do you think that on a broader level, we as readers can use historical fiction to learn from the past um, and maybe envision a better future for ourselves? Well, I think one of the things we as readers, well, preface to answering your, your, your very good question, Harold Bloom, and I can't remember the essay, but he says that of all forms of fiction, historical fiction in our day is probably the, the genre that is most easily dismissed as serious literary fiction. You know, you have to imagine that in a deep voice, you know, and um, what he's and he's not saying that Bloom isn't saying that. But what Bloom is saying is that if you look at the critical landscape, it's easy to dismiss historical fiction because we think of it as, as not um, relevant, you know. And my argument, my counter argument to that sort of pervading attitude is that human experience in the deepest classic sense is always relevant. Um, if you read Sappho writing about her, her fascination for and love for another woman, 
thousands of years ago, it's still relevant. It's not as though it ceases to matter. It matters profoundly. And so I think one of the things I would wish if I had a magic wand, if you gave me a magic wand, Sarah, this is what I would do with it. I would wave it and I'd say, let contemporary readers um, once again, learn to appreciate a story set in the past as being about the present. Um, the novel just before this one, My Mistress Eyes Are Raven Black, which was set on Ellis Island, is about eugenics and immigration, and it, it's very contemporary. Um, it's set in the 1920s again, but but it is mm. about, as just as you said, it's about today and tomorrow and the day after. I think Joe's story in many ways is the same because Joe's story, ultimately, it is a hero's journey, a heroine's journey. And what she's doing is fashioning a life. First, she has to imagine it. And then she has to create it. And she uses those words, exactly those words, imagined and created. And to me, that's a very existential frame, if, if you will. And to me, that's what we're all challenged to do. We live in a time and a place where we aren't given answers. You know, there is no one way to do things. There is no one kind of family. There is no one um, means by which you proceed through life honorably and dutifully and virtuously. It just doesn't exist anymore. And so it, I think the onus is on us as 21st century people to, to make it up and then make it and then fashion it once we've imagined it to make it. And so there's a way in which her journey is to not just discover herself. That's as though her true self's waiting around the corner, mm -hmm. you know, um, <laughs> but rather to create herself. And I think, uh, you know, bluntly, I think that, that, that is a very contemporary idea um, and a contemporary challenge. And so back to the magic wand, I could wave it. I would wave it so that contemporary readers um, didn't weren't tempted to dismiss a story set in the past as not relevant to the present. Because if it's good, it's good, and if it's good, it's it's relevant. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, that's so true. Um, and Joe, Joe, as a person and her care, her character, and that struggle of you know how do you make your life for yourself? How do you make yourself the person you want to be? that's such a universal, timeless thing. Um, and I think, you know, society and culture has changed, but people are pe still people, <laughs> maybe humans and individuals don't change mm -hmm. that much. Um, so it's really fascinating to think about that through this lens. Um, yeah, so that that was my last question, but I feel like I've, I've learned so much from this. I loved reading the book. I definitely recommend it to all of our listeners, whether they typically read historical fiction or not. I promise it's a very fun and entertaining and, and relatable read. Um, and thank you so much, Terry. This was this is fascinating. Well, you're very welcome. It's been a delight. It is my privilege. And I mean that heartfelt in a heartfelt way. So thank you. Thanks for the well, conversation thank and thanks for the reading. And and here's to um, doing it again sometime. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. 
You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in Act 3. We've got a community blog post. And just a reminder, if you're out there and you're a writer, um, send us uh, a blog post, 750 words or less. Uh, you can do it through our website, uh, Community Voices. And if, if we accept it, uh, we'll put it on our newsletter and we'll put it uh, put you on the podcast and talk about you. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, Sarah, you want to introduce this one? Yeah, so this is by Joe Conjol. It's called Writing Can Be a Gift. Um, Joe loves a good mystery. It's what inspired him to become a writer. And he's the author of the Rasmund Mystery Crime File series starring Tony Rosalito, P.I. All right. Well, let's play the, the post and uh, his performance of it anyway, and then we'll talk about it. I'm Joe Conjol. Writing can be a gift. There are many authors who have given me the gift of writing. Every time I read a story that takes me out of my world and into theirs, I'm enjoying the gift of fantasy, mystery, make-believe, and even heart-stopping thrills. Those stories are their gift to me, and I am happy to accept them. We've all heard people refer to certain authors as gifted writers. I will concede that there are some writers out there who, after just one novel, seem to have everything figured out. It appears to come easily to them, that they are gifted. But what we don't see as the reader are the hours that went into honing their craft, sometimes for years before that big break turned them into an overnight success, making it all look easy. From the perspective of the writer, those hours spent alone with just our thoughts, pen and paper, or a computer are a labor of love. But easy is not the word most of us would use to describe any writing talent we may have. In the same way a talented athlete possesses the passion that drives them towards perfection, a talented writer must also possess the passion for improving their writing skills. Because like that athlete, raw talent will only blossom into greatness with practice. If there is a willingness to put in the work, then the possibility of being referred to as gifted exists. For the writer, that passion is for the written word. Putting words together is easy. Putting the right words together can be difficult. Not quitting, even in the face of a total manuscript overhaul, takes resolve. The ability to breathe life into an idea by shaping the words into a story takes skill and a determined mindset. When done right, the words flow, and the reader becomes absorbed in the narrative. But that passion and determination can also push us to keep reworking and trying to improve the storyline. So we continue to rewrite the words. And although that may appear to keep us inspired, it can also lead to frustration preventing us from attaining that perfection. Sometimes the gift is to know when to leave well enough alone. Creative writing is a learned skill. The more you do it, the more you improve. Getting better at something you love doing and then having the people you share it with appreciate it, well, that's a gift in itself. There are many genres and many ways to tell a story, and we all do it differently. Of course, there can be similarities in styles and story plots, but that can be chalked up to like-minded people who enjoy writing about the same subject. But even two like-minded writers who work in the same genre will craft two completely different stories when given the same writing prompt. A difference that is also a gift as it helps us see things from each other's perspective. As a reader, you may love one story and hate the other. But it doesn't diminish the hard work and time spent by each author. It also doesn't make one writer more gifted than the other. For every reader that falls in love with a book, there is another who doesn't appreciate it for what it is. Readers who loved the book believe the author has a knack for telling a great story, is gifted even. 
Readers who dislike the book may not have as high an opinion of that same author and won't be a fan. Sometimes the gift is not in the ability to write amazing prose at all. Sometimes the actual gift is in an author's ability to market their work. I've read some pretty terrific books by indie authors that most people have never heard of, and I've read some pretty mediocre books by authors that are media juggernauts. So is writing a gift? That depends on how you look at it. There are writers and storytellers all over the world providing an escape through entertainment. When I'm writing, I get lost in my characters' lives and can't wait to see how it turns out. When I'm reading a good book, the same thing happens. I get lost in the characters' lives and can't wait to see how it turns out. I'm a fan, the devotee of both writing stories and reading stories written by others. And that, to me, is the actual gift of writing. All right. Well, Mark, I'm sure you'd probably have a lot to say about this, given that you spent your whole career in the English department and writing and submitting and so forth. What are your initial thoughts? Well, I know I I agree with everything that he said. Um, There's a um, uh, different ways to read, different ways to analyze a work of literature or just straightforward fiction. Um, And um, one of those is called reader response theory. And the thing about reader response theory, the premise of it is that we might all look at the same text, um, but we bring different things to the text. So when you're reading a book, Landis, you're bringing your experience of all those years working as a trial lawyer. And Sarah, when you're reading a book, you're you're bringing your familiarity with the things, uh, your life in New York or, or screenwriting or familiarity with movies. And what you bring to the text in some ways affects how you respond to it, whether you think it's a good story or whether you don't think it's a good story. Um, The meaning of the story is uh, magic alchemy between the reader and the writer. And that's what I like about this piece is looking that it's the reader to some degree who finds the meaning in the text. It's not really the writer, it's the reader. Um, And so the point the author makes um, that, you know, you might like the book and the and another person who's just as well educated doesn't like the book has all, has everything to do with reader response theory. Um, so I, I'm always hesitant to say, oh, this is a good book and this is a bad book because some people respond to this kind of story and some people respond to that kind of story. One of the things I try to do in my Story Charlotte blog, or when I'm trying to come up with a reading list uh, for my classes where I'm teaching different kinds of books, is to come up with a great variety of books, knowing full well that um, some people will like some of them and some people will like other ones of them, but I try not to make them all the same kind of thing. Yes, those are good good points. Uh, Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, And it really is a two way street between the writer and the reader, you know, they're both bringing different things to the table. And of course, the the readers perspectives and experiences are always going to impact how they receive the piece of writing and how it sort of takes shape in their minds. Um, and I also love Joe's point going to that kind of reader writer relationship about how he, he takes writing from others as a gift and thinks of it as this gift that they are giving him of giving him a great story, whether it's a piece of fantasy or mystery or whatever. Um, and I think that's helpful to think about for your writing too. Like, what are you trying to give the reader? What is it that you're trying to, um, deliver to them with this piece, whether it's just giving them some entertainment, making them laugh, whether it's 
a certain idea or theme that you really want to come across or a deep emotional experience or issues that people may not be aware of that you want to bring to light? Like what, what's your goal in terms of something that you are going to leave the reader with once they put the book down and they're done? Um, and that's kind of a beautiful relationship that you can build between the writer and the reader. Yeah. I've always, uh, said that, you know, um, when authors say that, you know, my book's for everyone, they haven't really thought through <laughs> this whole thing we're talking about here in terms of a uh, reader response theory. I hadn't I heard, heard it mentioned that way before, but the idea being that, look, you, you know, you're going to write uh, a piece as uh, best you can, but it's not going to be for all readers. And uh, sometimes, as Mark says, those who reject uh, or don't like what you've written have nothing to do with the piece itself, but maybe more in line with what they like to read or what they respond to best. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're a writer, and we talked about this in the last episode, who's getting writer's block or feeling like uh, imposter syndrome because, hey, you know, nobody's going to read this, nobody's going to like this. There are going to be people out there like you that think like you that are going to respond to what you, you know, your, you know, perspective on, on writing. And, um, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I was thinking about, you know, the, the history of the Mac deck when I was talking to a group about my book, Deadly Declarations. I was thinking, I wonder how this story would be told if it were told from the perspective of a non-lawyer. You know, I mean, I brought a certain, you know, 35 years of practicing law. So the way I told the story by having a former lawyer in a retirement community and having a will contest would be totally different than the way somebody else might kind of unwrap that history and both stories could be, you know, appealing to different groups of people. So I just think that's interesting because uh, I think that's why you're drawn to certain writers. I think that's why you're drawn to certain stories because, you know, when you get different perspectives and people come at it from a different way, I think it adds uh, to the narrative. And I would say this too, there's a part of this story that has nothing to do with readers and has everything to do with, uh, uh, you know, perseverance, which we've talked about before on the podcast. And that is his comment that, uh, you know, putting words together is easy. Putting the right words together is difficult. Not quitting uh, takes resolve. And I think that's uh, important because, um, you know, it's easy to write a few pages or maybe a first draft, but to finish uh, takes time, takes resolve. Yeah, and the point thoughts? that he makes about, um, that for some people, it looks like they just, it's easy peasy and they just dash off a book and it's a bestseller and everybody loves it. Um, well, uh, I don't know if you, any of you know AJ Hartley or Andrew Hartley, who's yeah, a friend of mine. Yeah, we've had, we've had AJ on the podcast and I'm reading his book, uh, Burning Shakespeare. Yeah, so I, I featured Burning Shakespeare <laughs> on my, uh, on my, um, on my blog a little while back. But, um, uh, I think of him as Andrew because that's his actual name. Um, uh, the AJ business is kind of a funny story, similar to uh, C, uh, um, uh, J.K. Rowling. It was an attempt to disguise his gender, um, but um, but then he just went with it, and, and a lot of people know him as uh, that way. But I think of him as Andrew. Um, but one of the points that Andrew makes is that he he wrote and wrote and wrote, draft book after book after book after book, with no success really to speak of for almost 20 years until he finally got it right. And then when he finally got it right, it looked like, oh, I wrote a book and now it's a bestseller and everything is, you don't really know as, as, as this person is, is saying, how much preparation went into it before you're actually able to uh, master the craft and gain the confidence and have the experience of life that you need 
to be able to, um, to, 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 to write a book that resonates. Yeah. It's like, uh, what's the quote? Talent is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I mean, you can yeah. be a gifted writer, but you have to have a lot more than that to actually make a career of it and actually get somewhere. It's, you know, having natural talent is helpful for sure, but, um, you still have to work really hard and you're still going to have to rewrite and market yourself and get out there and try to sell your work. Yeah. And the more you write, the better you get. I mean, it's, uh, and the more you study the craft writing, the better you get. So, um, you know, don't, don't put all your, your ego or, you know, feelings in those first couple of books because you're going to get better if you keep writing. You know, if somebody doesn't like them, maybe they'll like the next one. <laughs> Let's go with that. All right, we're going to move now to Act 4 right after this. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, we're here in Act 4, uh, and uh, certainly uh, last in the show, but not least at all, because we're going to be having uh, an interview with Mark uh, West, who's our co-host, right along with us today, and we're going to we're going to talk about him here just a minute in his presence while we uh, set this up. Uh, the name of the book is The Peeve and the Grudge and Other Preposterous Poems. Tell us about Mark, Sarah. Yeah, so Mark is a professor of, professor of English at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, he's been teaching courses in children's and young adult literature since 1984. Before entering academia, he was a preschool teacher and a professional puppeteer, which is probably the coolest career that you can have. <laughs> he's written or edited 19 books, um, many about children's literature and culture. And of course, he also writes the Story Charlotte blog, which we love to feature um, blog articles from here. And I'm super excited to, to hear about this book. I love the title. Yeah, it's The Peeve and the Grudge and Other Preposterous Poems, bringing together a series of humorous poems that resolve around wordplay and extended puns. Most of the poems are written in the voice of a child and deal with words and phrases that children uh, misunderstand. And uh, it's gotten good praise. Uh, Paula Connolly says, Mark West's pun-filled poems with their catchy rhythm and rhyme are part parody, part riddle and puzzle, perfect for read allows. The poems can delight both children and adults. And uh, Tiffany Moran says, this swim school book is a delight with its wonderful wordplay. It captures the charm of childhood when new phrases can sound simply preposterous. I found myself laughing out loud to In the Doghouse. Each poem is accompanied by wonderful illustrations that capture the silly situations as they might appear in a child's imagination. Highly recommend. And I agree with Tiffany because I read In the Doghouse and uh, it was a lot of fun and <laughs> Maybe that'll be one you'll read for. Oh, sure. I'm happy to read poems. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, before we have you read a few of these, uh, let's just talk about this because, uh, hey, you've been a college professor uh, many years. You've been teaching adult literature, but yet you've got this sort of, you know, knack for distilling it down into these fun little poems. Where does that come from? Well, you know, this book has a strange origin story. So, you know, it, it traces back to the days when I was a preschool teacher and 
daycare center worker and a puppeteer. And working with kids, I was always interested in how kids respond to language. I love the inventiveness that kids bring to, uh, to language and, and uh, the way in which they come up with alternative meanings uh, to words and phrases uh, that um, captures my imagination. And so off and on over the years, uh, I would hear a kid say something that really uh, really sort of just grabbed me and I'd mull it over and I would distill it down into uh, a poem, which I never intended to publish. This is an entirely accidental book. Um, I'd write these poems, I'd put them in a file folder. Sometimes I wouldn't even type them, I'd just write them down. Um, I'll give you an example of how uh, the title poem is called The Peeve and the Grudge. It goes back to the days when I was a, a preschool teacher in this uh, little girl came into my class and she said, um, uh, Mr. Mark, that's what she called me, Mr. Mark, um, what's a peeve? And I, I said, well, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, is it, is it some kind of a fish? And I said, well, why do you think it's some kind? Well, my mom says she has a new pet peeve and we, we just got a fish tank. So I wonder, um, <laughs> it's some kind of a, a fish. Um, <laughs> And so I explained to her that our pet peeve wasn't a fish, and she was deeply disappointed. And she and they had a look some goldfish, and she said, "Well, I'm going to call the goldfish peeve anyway." Um, uh, and she, she 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 didn't like my explanation at all. But that that little like, conversation just resonated with me. And some years later, I used that as kind of the uh, inciting incident that caused me to write the peeve and the grudge. Um, so it's not exactly the same as what happened in real life, but, um, but it does uh, stem back to that um, in terms of how a kid would think, well, what's a pet peeve? You would assume that it would be some kind of a pet. Well, but what is it? So um, um, I, well, I well, love that kind of stuff. Well, Mark, that's a good setup. Why don't we, let's read the peeve and the grudge because that's the. Okay, I love to read the peeve and the grudge. So, um, so I'll read you the peeve and the grudge right now. The peeve and the grudge. My mother and my father took down their fishing nets and headed for the seashore to catch themselves some pets. First mother spread her net and cast it with a heave. And when she hauled it in, she had cut herself a peeve. It was slimy. It was grimy. It looked something like a bug. But mother fell in love with it and gave the thing a hug. Then father took his net and ran it through some sludge. And when he pulled it up, he had caught himself a grudge. It was sticky. It was icky. It was covered up with mold. But father said, hooray, what a joy this is to hold. Now my mother has a pet peeve and my father holds a grudge. <clears throat> but if I had my way, I'd trade them both for fudge. Um, so uh, really the illustrations um, are by a woman from Spain called Ana Zarita. Um, and she's a big to-do in Spain, but this is one of the first books that she's illustrated here in the States. So I, I love her illustrations. And how did that come about, Mark? The, the publisher found uh, the illustrator um, and uh, sent me some examples and said, asked me if I thought, and I, I love her style because it's so humorous. And all of these poems are intended to be funny. Uh, although the humor functions actually 
uh, I don't want to be over, overly analytical, but it functions on different levels. Mm-hmm. So there's some of the humor that's aimed right at kids, and there's some of the humor that's aimed at adults that I don't think kids would catch. Um, but um, I'm hoping, whether I succeed or not is another thing, but I'm hoping to be able to, to you know, uh, resonate with both groups, with both the parents that might be reading the, story, the poems and with the kids. Because um, kids and adults, we're, we're similar, we're the same species, but we, um, but we look at the world in a somewhat different way. Yeah, well, I look forward to reading this to my grandson, Simon, uh, because I'll be getting a laugh. And if I laugh, he'll laugh, too, If he, even if he doesn't understand mm-hmm. fully what the poem's about, right? Yeah, you want it to be fun for the adults, too, I'd imagine. I mean, they're the ones who are probably going to be reading the books to kids, so it's important for them to find it interesting and entertaining, too. Yeah, and I'm curious. Well, one of the things that I try to do with it is um, capture the interesting dynamic between parents and adults mm-hmm. and how kids look at, at, at adults. Almost all the poems are written from the point of view of a child. Um, and so I try, to, I try to capture the kind of righteous indignation that children feel sometimes, you know. Uh, I, 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 I try to keep that voice um, in, in the poems. Um, I, I, I don't write it from the adult's point of view, but there's a, an adult side to the things that I write about. So I'm going to come back to we'll come back to the poems in a minute, but I'm curious about the publishing side of this because you talked about you know having a publisher. Is it different when you're uh, querying uh, or trying to find a publisher for a children's book than it is for uh, a longer piece? How does how does that world work, Mark? Uh, it, it, it's very different, um, but uh, uh, it's uh, this is a a picture book and it's hard to get a picture book published these days because the publishers are just absolutely inundated with, uh, with uh, manuscripts. Um, cause everybody thinks, well, I can, everybody thinks they can write a picture book cause it's so short. Um, <laughs> but, um, so the story of this book though, why I call it an accidental book is I would write these poems. I used to be the chair of the English department and there's a woman, she still works for the English department. Her name is Angie Williams. And Angie worked with me a lot when I was, for the eight years that I was the chair. Um, and she helped me a lot, especially with the technology things. Cause as, as you all know, I'm terrible with technology. I have a problem. Um, but, um, uh, so I'd write these poems and I'd put them in a file folder. But sometimes when I write a poem, um, I would go to Angie's office, which was right next door to my office, and I'd read the poem aloud. Um, and so um, I, I felt like they had to be read aloud. Um, and then I put them in a file folder and there I left them. Well, one, one year, a few years ago, I was giving a talk at at uh, sounds boastful, but uh, the truth is I was giving a talk at Oxford University and I was gone for almost a week. Um, and it was right around the Christmas season. So Angie knew where that file folder was and she took all the poems out and she typed them all up and made them all look pretty. Um, and uh, then it suddenly looked like a book. Uh, I didn't think of it. I thought it was just a file folder. Um, but now they're all typed up and all like they belong together. And uh, I was talking to an editor one day uh, with this company and uh, she said, well, do you write for children? I said, no, I write about children's literature, except for some poems. I've written some children's poems. And she said, oh, well, we love children's poetry. Can we see it? And so I said, well, I just so happen to have them all typed up now. So I gave them to her and the rest is history. Um, uh, but, but it really was accidental in a way. I never really thought it was going to happen. 
It must be a pretty good feeling to realize you've written a book without even knowing it. <laughs> yeah, it just accidentally <laughs> happened. So was this, it was it just sort of a, a, a hobby for fun? Because a lot of times writers go into, you know, they have a project, right? They're either writing a nonfiction book or they're working on a thesis or they're working on a screenplay or, you know, work of fiction. This just kind of developed because of your love of writing little ditties, right? I mean. Yeah, I just like to write. I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoy, one of the things we talked about at the previous episode was, um, uh, walking and um the, the the playing with language while i'm walking along well i really like the structure of uh, poetry where you have to pay attention to the syllables you have to pay attention to the rhythm you got to get it just exactly right and i'll be walking along saying oh no that's got an extra syllable in it i have to get it just right i'm paying attention to the words um and how they flow together and i'm saying them almost quietly to myself as i'm walking along and that's really kind of how i write the poems I, I i write them not on um paper or on the computer but while i'm doing something else just saying it over and over again finding the right structure um, so that it um, so that I can capture the rhythm that I'm looking for. Kids kind of like um, uh, poems that have a strong definite rhythm um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why Dr. Seuss is so good. I'm, I know a lot about Dr. Seuss and Dr. Seuss would spend you know a year working on just trying to get the Grinch right. Um, version after version after version after version. And he'd be just changing the syllable here and a syllable there until he got the rhythm right. Um, and so uh, I'm not going to compare myself to Dr. Seuss. He was a genius, but um, but I was trying to follow a similar process. So there's another poem in here. It's called Working for Food, and it kind of gets at, uh, you know, kids liking certain kind of food versus other, but it ties into, you know, from the adult standpoint, daddy's got a new job, you know, uh, kind of two, two things there. Do you mind reading that one? Sure. So um, sometimes growing up will say a word and the kids don't understand it right. And so they quickly jump to a word that they do know. So in the life of children, the word salary in terms of what you're going to be paid is irrelevant to a child. They don't understand what it is. So if uh, somebody says, oh, I've got a new job. It's got a great salary. Um, that, that's a word that doesn't mean anything to a child. They, they, they don't deal with that. But they're, so they're going to quickly jump to a word that they do know uh, that sounds like it. And then, and then the rest follows. So which, I will, which in this case is celery. Celery, right. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's what the kid thinks. Um, so I'll, I'll read you working for food. Daddy has a new job, but it sounds no good to me because all they plan to pay him are some stocks of celery. Now, he tells me that this celery is very good indeed, but I don't think that celery is much better than a weed. Sure, it tastes okay with peanut butter and it makes a nice loud crunch, but I don't want to eat it for every single lunch. No one asked me my opinion. But this is how I feel. If he's going to work for food, he should take a cupcake deal. Um, so um, a lot of the poems actually deal with food. Um, so since this is a, uh, a growing up podcast, I read a quotation one time that said adults are obsessed with sex and kids are obsessed with food. Um, so I think on some level there's some truth to that. Kids always think about food. 
Um, it's something that, they're, that, that the world kind of revolves around food. So there's a lot of references to uh, kids' responses to food, how they think about food, their favorite foods, the foods they dislike. That, that, that shows up if you worked. I was actually a cook at a daycare center once, and that was an interesting experience of seeing uh, how kids respond to food. And I work food into a whole bunch of these poems. Well, you know, speaking of that, I'll mention my grandson again, but only 14 months now, maybe 15 by the time this comes out. But my wife, Janet, takes care of him two or three days a week. And whenever she brings him over to the apartment we have in Durham, first thing he goes to is the high chair because he, he, he understands that that's where you get served food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, and, and we, you know, it's almost like you got to strip him down when you feed him because uh, I think as much is going on him. <laughs> right, exactly. In him. <laughs> and, uh, but every now and then, you know, you'll serve him something that uh, just doesn't, doesn't hit and he'll just throw it to the side, you know, and he'll go for something else. But, uh, yeah, um, now this is, this is really fun. Um, before we do another one here, you know, Sarah, you had mentioned you're intrigued by this idea of being a puppeteer. You want to ask any questions about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's fascinating that you actually did that professionally. Um, did that, I guess, impact how you wrote this at all? Like, were you, were you writing these? I know that you weren't intending for them to be published initially, but did you have in mind like, oh, this is how somebody could maybe perform this or how it would be said out loud or how it'd be fun for children to listen to? Yeah. Um, I love playing with my voice. And um, so when I was a puppeteer, I, I, I became a puppeteer accidentally as well. So um, I was, a, I've always liked to carve and I carved um, wood since I was a kid. Uh, you know, grew up on a mountain, Colorado. I always had a knife. I was always whittling and carving and I uh, have the scars to prove it. Um, but I've always liked kinetic art or art that moves. And so I thought, for some reason or another, that it would be fun to make marionettes um, because it would involve carving and it would involve um, uh, movement. So I um, started carving marionettes just for the fun of it. Um, And I ended up carving quite a few of them. And I said, okay, well, this was back in my hippy dippy days. Um, And so I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, which was a great place in the early 70s to be a hippie. and I went to craft shows and I started to um, sell my marionettes by order. So they say, oh, you want an alligator? Okay, uh, I'll get you your alligator by Christmas. And then I'd start trying to carve another alligator. Um, well, um, I met all my orders, but I turned my carving business into sweatshop labor. Um, I, was in, I don't like to use machine tools. I like to use hand tools, chisels and knives and things like that. But I ended up having to use power tools, even though I don't like them, just to speed things up. Um, and uh, so I said, oh, I, this, I'm going to hate carving, but I still like the marionettes. I said, well, now what am I going to do? So I thought, well, maybe if I write a show and perform it, I can stay in this marionette business. Um, so I did. I wrote a show and um it's the best show I ever wrote. Um, it just came to me. Uh, I had the characters in front of me, and I came up with a story, and it was called The Kangaroo's Tale. And I said, well, nobody's going to pay me to do performing. Uh, I was a musician at one point, but I couldn't imagine anybody paying me to be a puppeteer. So I charged next to nothing. Um, 
that was a brilliant move on my part, but accidentally, so I guess it wasn't brilliant, um, because I was so affordable, everybody could hire me. And so I became one of the most frequent performers in Wisconsin. I was performing four, five, six, seven, eight, ten times a week. Um, and just like writing, the more you do, the better you get. Um, and so uh, the experience of performing for kids and seeing how they respond to, their, to the humor, what kids find funny as compared to what adults find funny, um, uh, how kids respond to characters, the imagination of children. I played with all of those. That experience is still with me. It contributed to my idea to become a children's literature professor. And it certainly feeds into the poems that I wrote in this book. And you can tell that you really enjoy it, uh, uh, and I'm sure that helps in, in your in your classes with your students. Uh, I, I'm curious about this because um, I'm seeing catchy titles, I'm seeing good hooks, I'm seeing endings that kind of have callbacks and bring the whole story together. What, what is it that authors who write, uh, you know, I don't know, commercial fiction, for example, can learn from the art of writing children's stories or children's poems like this it's brevity it's brevity it's how do you distill it down it's one of the things we've talked about earlier is um okay i can't go on and on and on and on you know i have to make it short i have to figure out how i'm gonna make it work um in the in that more limited context um and i think um you know kids one of the things i hate uh, in terms of the world I live in, in the children's literature world is this idea that kids are stupid um, or you have to explain everything to kids or that kids are somehow or another uh, not as uh, sharp as adults. No, it's actually the opposite. Kids are smarter than we are. It's just that they don't, they, they have more active brain cells than we do. They really do. If you start us off on an even playing field, and you see this a lot with immigrants and language. So you move a, a, a 25-year-old from Ukraine to Charlotte, and you move a two-year-old from Ukraine to Charlotte um, and say, okay, here's your new world. The two-year-old will learn English much faster and much better than the 25-year-old because they, they just learn faster. Um, so I have a great respect for the intelligence of children, um, and I try to uh, respect that in the things that I write for them. So I think um, that in some ways translates to advice for writers. Is respect the intelligence of your reader. and Don't feel like mm -hmm. you always have to say, and the moral to that is this. Um, <laughs> let the moral, if it's going to be a moral, let it be embedded within the story and you don't have to come out and say, now children, do you understand what that moral means? No, that just ruins it mm. when you do that. Yeah, that's good. Well, before we have you go to your last poem, I'm going to have you read here, Sarah, any other thoughts or questions? Well, actually, I kind of want to touch on what you just talked about there with adding morals into your, your work. I know a lot of children's literature does have some kind of, um, lesson that it's trying to teach. It's got a prescriptive angle to it. And the poems that you've read so far are much more just about, it seems, entertainment and wordplay and kind of the joy of the language and imagination, um, which I, I really like. I think that's kind of refreshing in a way. Do you try intentionally to put morals or lessons into any of these no. poems? Um, I, I don't like morals. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, so I, I really try to avoid them to some degree. But yeah maybe in a very broader level it's not a moral but it's a value and that is empowering mm -hmm. children um i i believe in giving children a certain amount of agency the ability to make decisions that matter 
Um, and I try in some of these books to, um, uh, some of these poems, I mean, to um, to respect that and celebrate it in a way, because um, I think uh, kids um, should be in situations where their intelligence is respected and they're given opportunities to make decisions and they and have their own reactions to things. I really what I'm trying to do in these poems is get in the head, head of a kid. Um, and that's kind of actually a hard thing for a grown-up to do. What most grown-ups do yeah, in the world of children's literature is they remember the surface circumstances of their childhood. They remember the name of the third grade teacher. They remember the address where they lived when they were nine years old. They remember surface details, the name of their, their dog when they, were, when they were little, but they don't remember how it felt to be a child, how a child responds to things. And it, you really have to kind of, uh, an author I know a lot about and I knew and I interviewed and wrote a book about him was Roald Dahl. But Roald Dahl was so darn good at getting into the head of a kid and the way, in, the way a kid sees things. Um, and I, I'm nowhere near what, how the, the genius Roald Dahl had, but I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to get in the head of a kid. Um, and uh, to me, that has a certain intrinsic value. Well, one indication to me, and Sarah, you may have heard it too, but um, as Mark's talking, um, you can see a little bit that he's thinking uh, like a child here because he uses the term grown-up. You know, that's what kids say about adults, right? You don't, you weren't saying adults, you were talking about grown-ups. So it's kind of embedded in yeah, you, right? Yeah, yeah. This... I never grew up. <laughs> that's my problem. I'm in my late 60s, but I never grew up. Well, it's kind of a you sad story, up, yeah. but that's just the way it is. <laughs> well, before you read uh, In the Doghouse, uh, were you inspired by anything that happened on the home front that uh, put you in, in the doghouse? Or, uh, <laughs> Not that I'm going to talk about. <laughs> Uh, no, I've yeah. been in the doghouse yeah. on occasion. Yeah. Um, Everybody, everybody's been in the doghouse. Oh, uh, but I've always liked so, that uh, phrase in the doghouse. Like, oh, well, what's in the doghouse, and how do you get in the doghouse? Um, yeah. so, um, well, I tried to get one of our when when I, Jan and I got married. Uh, she brought a dog into the family um, who didn't care for me much, which was a problem. But uh, once she took a trip, and I. And he was an indoor dog, and I was going to make him an outdoor dog when she took this 10-day trip. And so I built a doghouse, right? He sat outside and watched me build it. And uh, with this kind of, I don't know if dogs can have expressions on their faces while somebody's doing something, but this one, if he had it, was somewhat with disdain, right? You know, what do you think you're doing? I don't need, the, I don't need a doghouse. So I finished the doghouse. It was a nice doghouse. had shingles and everything. Uh, and so I closed the sliding glass door and sat down to, have a beer and watch TV, and you know, he's got his nose pressed against the the glass, and the doghouse is with it about three feet away from him. It starts pouring down rain, you know, and the dog's not, he is determined not to get in that <laughs> dog, the doghouse. So even dogs, Mark, don't want to get right. in the doghouse from, from, from my own experience. So, uh, But anyway, uh, why don't you uh, share in the doghouse? Okay. Guys? So it's called In the Doghouse. Our dog has a doghouse. And that is where she goes on days when it's raining and on days when it snows. I went outside and called her one dreary Saturday. I said, come out, old doggy. Let's run around and play. She stayed inside her doghouse, so I peeked in through her door. I saw her in the corner. I spied something more. 
Lying right beside her and looking rather sad was a fully grown person, and that person looked like Dad. I asked, Can that be you, Dad? Is, is everything all right? He answered, Yes, it's me, son. This is where I spent the night. When I asked him why he slept there, this is all he had to say. If you ever get a wife, son, don't forget your wife's birthday. So, um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I like it. It's a great example of one that's fun yeah, to Yeah, so, I know, you know, because uh, yeah, yeah. we've all been there. <laughs> so, <laughs> made a mistake. Um, that's, that's great. Uh, well, Mark, uh, tell us, uh, you know, what's, uh, I mean, it seems like you're always doing projects. You do, uh, we've talked about Story Charlotte blog a lot on the podcast. Um, uh, hopefully you're going to continue that. But uh, what's in the future for Mark Weston as well? Well, um, I'm always working on one project or another project. But, um, you know, I'll be working on my Theater Roosevelt project for the immediate future. Um, I have other projects that are lined up. Sometimes I think of writing as being like, I, I think of myself as like an air traffic control person. Um, and my writing projects is airplanes that are coming in uh, for a landing and they're different places in the, in the atmosphere. And uh, it's like, when do you have to clear the uh, runway for this plane to come in? How big of a plane? And can I land a little plane before the big plane comes in? Um, and so uh, in, in a weird sort of way, I'm the air traffic controller, although I'm also the pilot of the airplanes. Um, but the big plane that has to come in right now is my Theodore Roosevelt book, my second Theodore Roosevelt book, uh, That because I told the editor uh, they really want to capitalize on the success of the first one. So they want it to be out pretty soon. So I, I, I got to clear the, I got to clear the runways and land that plane in. Um, I'm um, involved in uh, editing a book of interviews with Roald Dahl. Um, I interviewed Roald Dahl myself twice. And so uh, there's a publisher, uh, the Mississippi University Press. Um, has a series called Conversations with Authors, which hey, you two know a lot about, don't you? Um, so um, I and a, a colleague of mine have uh, agreed to edit a book of Roald Dahl's interviews. Um, the problem with that is getting the rights to it. I had no idea how difficult it would be to get the rights to an interview that was published in 1977 and the author and the interviewer and the publisher are all long gone. How do you get the rights? It's like, it's mind-bogglingly mm -hmm. difficult, but that is the project I want to work on over the, um, over the spring. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to come back with our uh, takeaways and what's coming next in just one moment. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, uh, starting with takeaways. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I so enjoyed hearing about Mark's book and your, your writing process and how you write for children. Um, it was really entertaining and fun to hear the poems and also just really enlightening to hear about how you think about that. Um, and a lot of takeaways there that I think are valuable for people who write for adults, too. And same way with uh, Terry Roberts. I, I really enjoyed doing that interview with him. And even though I don't write historical fiction, I, I think I learned a lot from it that can be applicable to people who write anything. Um, there were some good insights there from him. 
And I, I also enjoy Joe's blog post about writing being a gift. I think that's a good thing to, to carry with us is thinking about, you know, what is this gift that we have as writers and how are we going to share it with other people? Yeah, and I'll give Mark the last word here in just a second. But let me just say that, uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure um, having you co-host with us and also really dive into this, uh, the peeve and the grudge. I was, I was laughing out loud as well, and I look forward to reading this to my grandson and having uh, some fun with it uh, with him and um, also just spending time with you. So, Mark, your final thoughts. Thank you very much for your attention to my, your, your kind attention to my collection of, uh, of children's poems and um, your uh, insights into the writing process. And uh, I wanted to comment on a point you both made related to uh, reading poems aloud. Poems work best when they're read aloud whether they're poems for children or poems for adults. Part of the pleasure of poetry is to immerse yourself in the sounds of language, not just the words themselves, but the sounds of language. Actually, to tell you the truth, I really believe that's true for all writing. Um, when I'm writing, sometimes people think I'm insane because they'll hear a voice coming in from my office and they'll think somebody's in my office and really it's just me reading a draft of something I've written, but it makes so much more sense to me if I read it aloud to understand how the rhythm and the structure of the writing goes. Um, I can try to recreate that in my head, uh, but I need the actual sounds to fully uh, appreciate it. So uh, it was fun to read my poems aloud to the two of you and to anybody who might be listening to our podcast. Um, I hope that they will read the poems aloud as well. That's great. All right, Sarah, you want to take us into what's coming next? Yeah, so um, next time we have got an interview from New York Times bestselling author Charlie Lovett about his new novel, The Enigma Affair, um, a suspense novel in which a hitman and a small town librarian solve a mystery while escaping everything from train killers to explosions to imprisonment. Sounds like a very exciting one. And we're also going to be discuss discussing research and editing with Kara Bertrubia's blog post, When You Think You Know Everything, Think Again. Um, and of course, we'll always have our host and community updates and book recommendations and writing tips and more. All right, listeners, well, thank you for spending uh, some of your valuable time with us. Uh, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, read on and write on.